everybody, and welcome to another episode of React Roundup. This week, I'm your panel. I'm Charles Maxwood. You probably haven't heard me in a while. I haven't been on this show for a few weeks. We have a special guest this week, and that is Dean Radcliffe. Dean, do you want to say hello? Hello, everybody. This episode is sponsored by Kendo React. Progress is Kendo React is a commercial library of UI and data visualization components for React, designed and built from the ground up for React. In other words, it has zero external dependencies. The library includes more than 60 professionally developed, and trust me, they're great looking components, including powerful data grid with many advanced features such as export to PDF and Excel, plus a vast array of useful components from buttons to dropdowns, a date picker, tree view. They just look great, and it makes your website look great. And they have three really, really polished themes. It augments any existing UI component library as well. So you can use it with other component libraries if you're doing that. You can get a 30-day free trial, which enables you to use the library's complete functionality and access Kendo React's technical support. Now, these guys are legendary. They have a 93% customer satisfaction, and you can get full access for the period of the trial. And your tickets are typically answered by the Kendo React developers themselves. Now, all you have to do to get this trial is to go to kendoreact.com slash reactroundup. That's kendoreact.com slash reactroundup, and reactroundup is all one word, no dashes or underscores. So go check it out right now. Now, you should probably serenade us for a few minutes. And What do you mean? I was just, uh, you know, checking, doing a little sound check here with a little ditty called uh, Sadie's Tale. Oh, Nice. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I love the personal touches on these calls. It's it's funny because we get so focused around the technology and the the hard things at work. And, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, there are these other things to life like music and sports and playing yep, and kids. Yep. And yeah, do you want to just give us an introduction? Let us know who you are and, you know, why, why people follow you. <laughs> Well, I can tell you, I've been web developing, I'd like to say, uh, since the table tag was the new hotness. Nice. Um, <laughs> I remember that. OG tables, right? Oh, Dreamweaver. man. Does, does that make you older or me older? Because I, I was doing it in high school with the tables. I stopped counting at 29, so, you know. <laughs> man, um, you are old. Well... So, you know, years of web development with various interests along the way. Now my, my big interests are my wife and two kids and music and, uh, and sports. And I like to say that I help people make whatever they can dream up. Awesome. And you usually do that with React? Are there other technologies that you use? I've been more uh, going towards the front end. I had a very inspiring several years with Ruby, and I still work in Ruby some of the time. But the front end has had this renaissance, and it's really like on the front end that you can do cool stuff like animate and play music. And I don't know, the kind of things that like my daughter would find interesting, for example, are in the front end. And so, and a lot of really interesting engineering challenges. So in the front end, yeah, React has been my, my weapon of choice well, since uh, just just after it came out, I would say. That makes sense. It's kind of interesting to watch how all of the frameworks have evolved over the years and, and wound up where they are. How early did you get into React? I would think it was around 2014, which is about when it came out. I was a little bit late to the party, though, because I'd been involved in reactive frameworks for years before then. So going back to maybe 2010 or, or earlier, there was a framework called Knockout.js, 
And uh, it has computed properties, which you might see in view and other modern frameworks these days. So the idea of reacting to change and, uh, you know, the kind of extension of what goes on in a spreadsheet when you put a bunch of numbers and you have a cell that is the sum of another range and it just reacts to change is kind of been a, a way that's made sense to me for a long time. And so yeah. then React came along and kind of filled that hole. They kind of pioneered the one-way data binding. It was funny because I was uh, playing with Angular at the time and two-way data binding was the cool thing. And then mm-hmm. React came along and they had it bound one way instead of two ways. And all of a sudden, they had all these performance gains and all these other cool things out of it. And it was like, whoa, this is really cool. What'd you do with one of my directions of data flow? Well, we, we made your app perform better. <laughs> well, and it was, I was so in love with this thing and, and now it's not the bomb. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I remember talking to... Was it Sam Stevenson? It might have been somebody. He was the author of Knockout. Yeah, we, mm-hmm. we had him on JavaScript Jabber and talked about Knockout. And it was really interesting talking about MVVM and watching all of the uh, evolution there. I think he's at Basecamp doing something else. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting to follow this. So the one-way data binding was kind of part of the whole reactive programming thing. And that, that's a part of what we're talking about here is making your forms reactive with RxJS. So when you're talking about that, and you've kind of alluded to pieces of this, but what, what are we actually talking about here? So there's a couple of things that have really helped me become a front-end developer. Uh, right. And you know, one of them is this idea of reactive programming. And RxJS is a, uh, is a library that has a data type called observable. Mm-hmm. And observable is values over time, like a promise is a value over time. I gave a presentation on a basically advanced form that I was building at work. So let me let me unpack things and take a few steps back. Right. So I work at g2.com. G2 is like Yelp, but for software reviews. Oh, interesting. Restaurant consumers go to Yelp mm-hmm. to find out what's good. Software purchasers from all levels of the market, from small to mid-sized businesses up to enterprise, will read on category leaders based on the reviews that people are leaving on G2. Right. So there is a write a review form that I have been uh, leading up the development of. All told on the team across all roles, there's been six people and in developers, there are currently two active. One is on paternity leave and returning soon, mm-hmm. etc. So we're developing the form on G2 where someone interacts with to leave a review. So some of the things that we have to react to in this form are that when a person who's bought the software, the user of the review form, tells us that they are a administrator, they, they, they purchase the software and use it as the administrator. They set it up for their whole company. There's different questions we want to ask them than if they say they were a user, right? So a Microsoft Excel user, there's things we want to know, but somebody who set up Salesforce for their entire mm-hmm. enterprise, we want to know about the setup experience. And so right. data feeds into data. And this has to uh, be real time as far as the user is concerned. So that, that's just one example of, uh, of reactivity. 
in the form. That's a very user visible example. And I, I have a lot others under the covers. There, there are analytics events and Ajax going on. We have to react to those return values as they come back in. So there's a whole host of things that that go on into making a uh, review form, which is why we're we're building it from scratch and not just you know pulling in a survey monkey, for example. That makes sense. So when I mean when you're building a reactive form, because I come from the old Rails days, right? So you submit a form and it just kind of gathers up all the data, you know, and then mm-hmm. puts it in a pile and sends it off to the server. Yep. But when you're talking about reactive forms, you're talking about something happens when you fill in an input or check a box or things like that. What are some of the use cases there as far as I'm just trying to get my head around like what kinds of things are going to happen when you fill in an input or so when you fill in an input, the data is you know remembered by the form so that if the user mm-hmm. has a disconnect with their session, we don't lose what they've written. Every word is valuable. Okay. Oh, right, because it's a review form. So mm-hmm, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's longer form. So yeah. yeah, I wrote a novel about this novel software. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, we don't want any <laughs> kind of error, uh, foreseeable or unforeseeable. Right. Um, yeah, because my next review will be, it's great. Right. <laughs> and that's a very little value to prospective buyers, right? So yep. we uh, try to increase users' engagement with the form by having uh, a grade that improves We'll be, you know, trying out different ways of just incentivizing, making this a more pleasant interaction um, so that people are incentivized to use more. No, that makes sense. So the reaction or the the action that's taken when they update a field could be sending it back to the server or storing it in local storage or something like that, where it makes it so that, yeah, it's not gone. Yeah, I would say all of the above. And even today's combinations or are, are different than last month's combinations are going to be different than next month's combinations. Yeah. So that provides kind of an opportunity to segue into component-driven development with Storybook. Right. So do you want to just give a brief introduction as to what Storybook is? And then we can talk about the component-driven development. Then we can kind of tie this all together. Mm, yeah, yeah. Oh, this is great. Let's bring it all out on the table and then build a tower out of it. <laughs> Hopefully not a t- house of cards. All right. So so Storybook is a tool, the, the, maybe the, the other most valuable tool I found as a UI developer. So it's available for React and mm-hmm. it's also available for other UI frameworks, but we'll talk about Storybook React. And so when you have a React component, let's talk about a field of a review form that has a valid state, an invalid state, and a valid, but could you please leave more information? We want to incentivize you state. Three states. And that's a small number, but just for illustration purposes. So picture yourself, the developer or the the tester of this this component, and you want to see each and every state. Mm -hmm. Do you have to load up the Rails server, the backend Postgres server, the Redis server, it depends on, the asset pipeline, which actually is Webpack. Do you have to load all these dependent services to view the actual review form in the browser, then type in to that field to see the different states? Or can you use a tool like Storybook to just jump directly to each of those states that the designer probably has designed three separate views in sketch or abstract or whatever tool. And so now your answer to that 
with Storybook can be the three states of the live component with the text already filled in. Right. And then the designer or, or yourself or the tester can interact with those components live in Storybook, delete some words until it says it's not valid, it's not long mm-hmm. enough, add words. These are live instances of your components that have shortcuts directly to the state, uh, the, all the visual states that they have. Yep. Well, in my experience, I would have said the former <laughs> until you said, or you can use Storybook. <laughs> right. Docker, do your thing. Spin everything up. Okay, here we go. Sure, sure. Up to a, up to a point. Yeah. And what happens when uh, a certain field is dependent on 20 different answers? Oh, yeah. Set just fun. a certain way. I mean, we've all, you know, tested our sign up form by typing in passwords. How many keystrokes have developers across the world yep. wasted like typing in keystrokes to the to the forms we're building? Oh yeah, just to make sure they work. Right. Right. Yep. Happens day long, day long. What if we can save our keystrokes for the angle brackets of JSX instead? <laughs> oh gee, that would be nice. Ah. Yeah. Well, or you copy and paste or Sure, sure. You have some test script that'll put it in, but yeah, it's still... So with Storybook, these these states, um, they facilitate your development and they they facilitate this this feedback cycle going back to the developers or the the designers rather. So we have this one-way data flow typically from design to development. When do we give the designers anything other than the finished application, which like I said, suffers from those problems that they can't necessarily jump to all of the states of what you've built off of their designs. So Storybook allows you to give the designers, the whole rest of your team, actually, the, the shortcuts to each and every one of those states. Mm-hmm. Then they can, they can say like, oh, that's what it looks like with you know, all that text. Maybe we should make changes. You want to you invite feedback. That's kind of what G2 is about and, and really like, you want to invite feedback right. by showing the designers what you were able to do with their designs and even publish these to a completely static site yep. as part of like your CI process. Yeah, it makes sense. It's interesting to think about. And I've been reading a leadership book and it talks about making it as easy as possible for your leader or the people who work for you because it's both, right? To mm-hmm. uh, give you what you want. And so this makes a whole lot of sense, right? Yeah, make it as easy as possible for people to give you what you want. And that's a solid review. Yeah, yeah. We don't want users to see states that we haven't seen. Right. Right. <laughs> oh, that never happens in software. No. <laughs> I don't know why you're worried about that. <laughs> so yeah, so we're diving into this. We're kind of getting an idea around, okay, so you can you can model your component based on the different states it can be in. Yeah. So how does this how does this tie into reactivity then? Well, um incrementally. We, we kind of talked about both. And I guess I guess you uh, mentioned component-driven development. So that's probably a piece of this too, right? Yeah, yeah. Let's, so let's start by, by flushing that out. So we, we've heard of, you know, there's a million acronyms that end in DD, driven development, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you can see how Storybook, by putting the, the focus on the visual states of your components, you know, allows you to design each visual state of your components. So that's, that's pretty cool. One thing that happens as you are filling as you're, as you're filling out your stories, and I suggest, I like to fill out the stories first before writing unit tests, because I think unit tests are a hard and not fun way to drive development. 
they're necessary, but what's quicker and more engaging is sketching out these stories, deciding on the props for React, obviously props, um, that are necessary to get each component into each state. And so in the same way that the the promise of test-driven development is that by testing first, you discover the API of your component, Mm -hmm. the storybook-driven development or component-driven development allows me to discover the API, in other words, what sets of props are necessary to put this component into each possible state that can be displayed. So I I think of storybook as visual unit tests. Right. Yeah, but they're manual, right? Or can you actually run your tests in storybook? Ah, so I have not explored that add-on, but right now it is not an actual test environment that uh, for for, on our team, it's not. There is an add-on that lets you take the next step. So we do have unit tests and, and this is what actually helps us write unit tests more and faster is that mm-hmm. for each visual state, we had to come up with the props to hand the component to be in that state. Right. Well, doesn't that sound like stuff that you need when you write unit tests? Yeah, you basically. Set up data. So yep. we call them alternately factories or fixtures. Uh-huh. And these fixtures that drive your stories can be the exact same ones that drive your unit tests. So there's a really good synergy. It's not wasted work at all. If you think that you're going to be testing your components, you'll need that data, uh, the factories or fixtures. So why not come up with that data while you're playing with it in Storybook and then kind of harden it into unit tests once once you've got the look down? And then you can continue to tweak the, the visual appearance of it in Storybook. Nice. Storybook community does have an add-on, like you said, Charles, that can can run your unit tests directly in Storybook and tell you pass or fail for each mm-hmm. uh, state, but uh, I haven't explored it yet. Right. So you're you're building your components, you're putting them into Storybook. Let's talk about reactivity. All right, all right. So um, so here's where the marriage of of both sides uh, comes together. One of the components that we have in the in the review form is a grading bar that as the user gives more words, the grading bar changes different colors. It gets longer over time. We have, as you could imagine, a storybook story for each individual state of that grading mm-hmm. bar. But I like to say that that users don't see your application as individual states but as a stream of states flowing over time. Right. So I had a a theory, a a hypothesis that RxJS, a stream of values over time, and Storybook could come together and could I get the designer's feedback on how that grading bar progresses? Could Mm -hmm. I show an animation of the grading bar progressing and would that prompt the designer to give even more feedback that says, oh, maybe the transition from this letter grade to that letter grade should happen a little bit earlier because the user will feel blah, blah, blah. Things that you will not be able to see just focusing on the individual state. Could you drive a story with an observable? (laughs) And so I made a library to do just that called Storybook Animate. Oh, nice. If you take a look at, at that, I have an example. Uh, I kind of abstracted the idea of the grading bar 
to a, a metaphor that I thought you know was was simpler and not specific to to my company of a thermometer. And if you've ever uh, taken a, a child's temperature and you watch how the bar goes up first quickly. Uh-huh. And then it starts slowing down, and then you like cross your fingers to be like, "Oh, please stay under one hundred right. so that uh <laughs> and then you just oh no it it overshoots yep so there's a there's a flow, and that timing is how people are going to experience your components right, and so if you can create an observable of those states, and I have an example in there with a little simplified. DSL over uh, RxJS that just lets you kind of create very simply the time values of these props. So these are discrete sets of props. We'll say the thermometer has a temperature of 95, 98, 99.2, right. etc. And there's now whatever technique you want inside your component to smoothly transition those. We use CSS transitions. You have this combination of discrete sets of props being put in, and then some CSS animations or other React tools. Uh, I'm actually very curious on like what the state of the art in React animation components are now that hooks have come out. I've been listening to your show you know, for, for input and definitely would like more. But, but the idea here, though, in Storybook is that you know, just like your thermometer will get readings over time as discrete values, that's what this Storybook Animate does, is it plugs in those values. And then your component, if it's going to smoothly transition between values, that's your component's respo- responsibility still. Does that make sense? Yep. All right. So are you using RxJS to do the reactivity with observables then? So you're, just, right, right. you're getting a stream of state off of your inputs or off of your form? Now, in this case, they're hard-coded, just like you would hard-code your uh, states for... Uh, you know, for any component, you would okay. hard code your props. And, and so in, in this case, it's a hard coded observable of props. But the great thing about observables is just like with a promise, you, you don't need to know where that came from, right? It right. could be returned from a real server. Suppose that you're doing another component that is an autocomplete you know, that we're saying like, which version of Microsoft Excel did you use? And they're going right. to be typing in against a, a pick list well, your component in real life is going to hit your back end to get right. that list of values, or it has a local list of values. But sometimes we actually have to hit a back end because it's going uh-huh. to have a much larger set of possibilities than we could store right. in the front end. So that function that is called as they type into the autocomplete could be in Storybook providing a hard-coded observable so that right. you can see what happens when it's slow. And in production, of course, it would return the real observable. So it's kind of like promises where you can return a fake promise or return a real promise and the consumer doesn't have to know the difference. Right. Makes sense. So, so yeah, so you have these observables connected to your component then? Well, there's two cases, yes. So the the Storybook Animate uh, project shows two different cases. One, where from the outside, you're driving the props of a component. Right with an observable. And then the second example is the case where the component would normally receive as a prop a function that it would call to get a promise for some back-end results mm-hmm. or an observable for some back-end results if, if it's real-time. 
Right. And then, so the, the, the project, uh, the storybook animate project shows an example of designing your component in such a way that storybook can plug in a different function, just provide a different right. function as props. And then you can just sit back, click on the story that says slow loading autocomplete. Mm-hmm. Just click on that story in storybook and watch as the spinner appears. Yeah. Otherwise the designer would, would say, and you might've had this interaction before where they say, I didn't see the spinner. And you're like, well, it was really fast. This is local host yep. development, right? Yep. So in order to really provide empathy with a user, you need to be able to plug in slower or right. broken functions. And so those, those it, 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 it's really nice. Reactivity on both sides. Mm-hmm. Right. So in that case, you're essentially hooking in a function that goes, um, <laughs> right. And then, mm-hmm. so yeah, so then you get the, and then it may eventually come back with something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or an error, you know, because yeah. I think kind of like with unit tests, once you've gotten a couple of the cases down, just like you have these stories, you have a couple of stories mm-hmm. or you have a couple of unit tests. Do you ever go through and just say, what if I just copied and pasted these and made a few tweaks just to see if they work, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Once you get that initial validation, you say, okay, now I want to see this. Now I want to see that. It's daunting if you're in a test last mindset. Nobody mm-hmm. wants to do that. They're just right. like, okay, it's done. I wrote one test. Check it in, you know. Yeah. Uncle Bob, why do I have to write tests? You know. <laughs> <laughs> I have a show about that. It's called The DevRev. <laughs> oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah, it's about just being a top-notch developer. And yeah, one of, one of my... Uh, kicks that I'm planning on going on soon is you freaking need to write tests. You do. And and if it's fun, if something yeah. makes it more rewarding and easier, like having this dynamic cycle. You know, we talked about the old days of web development, right, Charles? Yeah. Where the feedback cycle was so fast. There was no build tools. Oh yeah. I mean even with JavaScript, you just write your JavaScript and reload the page. Yep. Yeah, or right in the script tags right there. That's right, yeah. Yeah. I I did that too and then moved it over to the JavaScript file. Yeah, sure, sure. So there's something about this that brings back some of that instant gratification. Yeah, Uh, AJ O'Neill on uh, JavaScript Jabber, he goes off on that stuff. He's like, it's not JavaScript because I have to use Webpack, (laughs) right? (laughs) Instead of just, yeah, just writing it in the browser or writing it for the browser and then just loading it. Yeah, And yeah, there's definitely something to be said for that, but yeah. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So your component then updates its own state based on what people fill in. Yes, yes, that's true. And then uh, you have the observables that, you know, provide other props for the component. Yes. So 
One thing that I've done a little bit uh, differently is that I think observables are, are super useful, but they're even more useful when they are hidden. So the storybook animate component, it has a little DSL for quickly creating an observable of props because that's mm-hmm. the common use case for it. It uses under the, the cover um, a function called after, which is the set timeout I've always wanted. I wrote the set timeout to end all timeouts and its name is after. And you say after 100, the milliseconds, you provide a value or a function. And that creates an observable of that value over time. You have to subscribe to an observable in order to get its value or call to promise on it or Mm -hmm. await it. So this after returns uh, an observable with a dot then property which most observables right. don't have, but mm-hmm. anything with a dot then property can be awaited. Right. After is one of, of several utilities uh, in, a, in a package called Rx Helper. I just had the, the, the delight of uh, giving a talk. This is where I met you actually at RxJS Live wow. in, uh, in Las Vegas a month ago. And the talk was about two was things. just a month ago. That feels like forever ago. <laughs> it might've been more, but yeah, it's been a busy, yeah. it's been a busy month, I'm sure. Yep. So Rx Helper provides this after abstraction, which can just, you know, provide a value later without mm-hmm. doing the dance that you have to do with promises. So it would be useful just for that. But in the context of React, it provides event-oriented layer. I think I'm thinking of renaming it Rx Events, actually. Right. Because if you also think back to the early days of development with jQuery, right? Yep. Dollar sign dot on. Like, that was just so cool. Yep. And you didn't have to only listen uh, for DOM events. There were patterns where you could trigger and then listen with $.on for custom events. I think they suggested a colon separator in them to distinguish your custom events. Yeah. Well, that's a really powerful paradigm still. I'm kind of curious why that is not at all the way that React works. but For example, it's very helpful to have custom events, I've come to believe. For example, in a review form where people are filling it out, we have an event called answer end. Okay. A user has answered Uh uh, a value. They've tabbed away from it. We'll say that it's an end. We got some answer change events while they were typing it, and then we got an answer end event. That is a really suitable event. An event is a really suitable thing to hang uh, functionality off of. Right. So for example, we're going to save it to local storage. We're going to auto save it. We're going to do an analytics event, whatever we're going to do. That event name is a concrete place where we document, here are the events that we care about in our application. And here is what happens in response to them. So, and if this, then that. Right. So Rx Helper allows you to uh, listen for custom events raised you know, from the individual components of a form. And you respond to those events with observables. Those observables produce values over time. So here's right. here's a more concrete example. The user is typing in an autocomplete field. They say uh, the question on the review form is, what products have you integrated this product with? Mm-hmm. So now they have to choose a list of products from the back end. Right. And they started typing in A. Mm -hmm. Okay, there's a bunch of products that are going to come back. And let's say Aardvark Incorporated is one of those products. 
I hate those guys. I know. I know. They just bump everyone down the list. I mean, you can think of in response to an answer change event in this particular component, Mm -hmm. an observable of product match events is going to trickle through. The thing is, as soon as their next letter occurs, AB, the result of aardvark is no longer relevant, right? Yep. Thank heaven. Thank God. So the idea of an event handler that returns an observable allows you to do all the things that observables can do easily, such as cancel the previous one. Yep. You might have had some talk on some of your uh, podcasts about promises and the challenges mm-hmm. of canceling promises. Yes, it's come up. And interestingly enough, observables are 10 years old. Promises are only six years old. So that means for four years, observables were in the wild, cancelable, yep. and lazy, and promises are neither of those. So by kind of dredging up some of this old tech, you actually have some features that are, are very cool that allow you to basically do event handlers, but do them right. Yep. For that scenario where events come in too fast and you're not done taking care of the old event. Right. So if you return observables from your event handlers and use some sort of scheduler like this RX Helper Mm -hmm. library, then that scheduler can allow you to just very quickly change the concurrency mode of those event handlers and say, for an autocomplete, the correct thing to do is to cancel or cut right. off. We have mm-hmm. a mode called cut off. So these correspond to uh, parts of RxJS called operators, these concurrency modes. And there's a picture in the, uh, in the repository for Rx Helper that shows visually the four different modes. The one is the default that you're familiar with. Event handlers start doing their work right away as the events come in. And that can lead to overlap and it can lead to problems. That's called parallel mode. The other three modes are serial mode, which means I'll start the work for that event, but only after I've finished the event that I'm currently processing serially. Then there are are the cutoff mode that I described for autocomplete. And then uh, one that I've called mute, which is useful for, you can think of if something is going on already, like you've called an elevator by pressing the elevator button. What should the elevator system do as you continue to press that elevator button waiting for it to come? It should do nothing. It's already calling the elevator. That's a mute. So basically, the four powerful modes that RxJS has internally, Rx Helper exposes as just string properties. So that if you want to try out a different one to see if that behavior is better, or more to your user and designer's liking, you can just change a string. You're not essentially editing code anymore. It's made it configurable um, how, to, how to handle, basically how to make events asynchronous. Nice. I love it. Yeah, it's a pretty cluttered field, um, uh, you know, how to do async events or async dispatches, you know, Redux Thunk, Redux Observable, uh-huh. Redux Saga. All well, these things are in that ballpark. I mean, back in the day, it was the the callback hell that you'd get into. So yeah, it's better in a lot of ways. I don't want to say that it's better across the board necessarily, but it's a whole lot easier to manage and visualize in your head with some of these other tools. Yeah, we're moving in the right direction. Yeah. But I think we have a long way to go. I mean, I just posted a a tweet this morning of uh, what happens when my, my cousin 
who has a, a gift of gab, writes a long text message. And it comes to me in five chunks. And the first chunk is labeled 505. <laughs> yep. And this is like some, somewhere between the Android and the iPhone developers on either side of this equation. Like they couldn't get async right. So we yep. have all these tools and they're better than before, but how come everything is still in production with these major problems? Yep. Yeah, I think there's, there's definitely room to improve. And, and part of it is, is education for sure. So, you yep. know, if the RX helper, if it provides a little transparency, makes it a little bit easier to, to try out different mm-hmm. concurrency paradigms, that's, that's its goal. And that's right. basically what we're using inside of the, uh, of the review form project. It lets us respond to events, be intelligent and configurable about what to do if those events overlap. Yeah, that makes sense. So uh, are there things that you're working on adding to RX Helper now, or is it basically done and you're just maintaining it? I think it's been done about uh, 75 commits ago. Okay. (laughs) The things I've added uh, have been more like, uh, I've added some aliases for things, which I know is a slippery slope. If you have real users, you don't want (laughs) to... give multiple (laughs) names to things because then you could end up supporting them forever. But I couldn't decide whether that parallel serial cutoff or mute was should be called concurrency or should be called mode. I like the less typing of mode. So now it it handles both of those. From a functional uh, perspective, it's been done for a while. It's written in TypeScript and it's very well tested. And then actually at RxJS Live, I learned some subtleties about RxJS error handling. Uh-huh. And I went back and checked whether I supported some of those error handling edge cases. And I might have released a tweak or two in the last uh, week regarding that. Oh, good. That's one thing that I love about this and about open sources. It's like, oh, there's this other idea or this other technique or there's a better way to do this. And yeah, so we learn and we grow and we put it in. Yeah. Very cool. I'm a little curious too how you kind of came to all of this because what was it just in the course of solving this particular problem or did you find That's your way a, to RxJS RxJS and some of this other stuff as you were um, knowing or what? No, this is an interesting path and it's it's a novel one because uh, I don't know if you've had very many uh, Meteor JS. Ah, oh, good old yes. Meteor. Uh huh. I've been doing this long enough that yes, we've yes talked you have about Meteor a bit. Yeah, yeah. But not for well, a long time. I had started writing Node, and I was kind of a a callback noob, mm-hmm. and promises weren't out, and my, I was not at all happy with the way my Node code was was going. And then Meteor introduced like full stack reactivity. Yep, which was really cool at the time. Yeah, there were only a few missteps that I think yeah. caused people to be turned off to Meteor in the general community. Yeah. I think the main audience that it served were people who already had front-end design skills, mm-hmm. wasn't me, by the way, who were just looking for an easy way to then, you know, get the rest of the stack. And they were like, I can use Sketch. Now can I get a full stack? I can have full stack. Yeah. And that sounds like an audacious ask, you know, mm-hmm. to, to understand Node, to understand build tools and all that stuff. But Meteor.js put it in reach of a lot of people. And they had a pretty audacious notion of full stack reactivity that I, I frankly miss 
uh, to these days. And when I when I decided that I wasn't going to be uh, working as hard on on Meteor, uh, partly because it was hard to get employers to adopt it. Right. I went back to the notion of observables that I had heard of back in the uh, C sharp days. I was mm-hmm. doing C sharp in when around 2010, I think. So uh, yeah, I said, what can solve this problem if it's not Meteor? And and it is a problem. For example, you know. Google Drive is really neat. It lets us collaborate in the same document at the same time. Not to pick on you, Jira, but uh, <laughs> Jira, you're not really neat. <laughs> We're, you know, collaborating in Jira, an entire team. Each of us has 10 tabs open. And on yeah. average, 9.9 of them are stale. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, clearly this reactivity issue is not a thing that everybody is solving. It's, it's clearly, you know, not the simplest thing to solve. Uh, GitHub will give you some real-time feedback now right. as pull requests are open and commits are pushed or changed in them, but there's still some things they don't do right. You've probably seen that. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think I was just gravitating towards like, you know, Meteor showed me a possibility and it was real. And I saw people who had very little coding skills initially whip up things in Meteor that were absolutely killer. So somebody uh, I know named Gino from the Meteor group that I organized, he made basically Uber, the, the driver app for Uber right? that tells them like where a client is uh-huh. and where to go and, and, and the map and the dispatch. He made that system in Meteor. Oh, wow. With like one or two years, less than two years, probably one year total of JavaScript experience. Huh. It was amazing. And it yep. was fully reactive and everything just synced up. And it was really, really hard to use Jira after seeing that. Yeah. I said, why don't you just hire Gino? He'll, he'll make this stuff work. Yeah, he'll fix it. Yeah. I saw the Meteor.js uh, light of, of kind of full stack reactivity. And I knew that I couldn't just get everyone to adopt Meteor. Um, so... I was looking for like what is something that could you know be an abstraction layer that that make can make things reactive, right. but not be bound to uh, Mongo and a specific version of Node and all the right. all the kind of baggage that that Meteor unfortunately had. Interestingly enough, this ties together with Storybook because one of the uh, big big contributors to Storybook, Michael Shillman is someone I met in the Meteor.js community. So I knew of Storybook because of my involvement in, with, that, with that community. And Storybook is reactive, so I probably didn't mention this, but it's a hot loading environment, hot module reloading environment. Uh-huh. As quickly as you save your files, they're visible in Storybook. Right. So it's very reactive. It is inspired by reactivity. It's kind of reactive through and through. Nice. Very cool. Yeah. So I, I now that I think is the is the top of the house of cards there. I think we just <laughs> pulled reactivity all the way through like how Storybook came to be and how Storybook is like itself a reactive environment. Nice. If people want to connect with you or follow what you're doing or things like that, are there good places for them to go to see that? Sure. My uh, GitHub account, which has some of these projects pinned, is is one good place. And that's just simply Denius, D-E-A-N-I-U-S. My Twitter is Denius O-L for Denius Solutions, my, my personal business name. 
And uh, my blog or website, I am working on using Gatsby.js uh-huh. to make a nice static React uh, website, but that is in progress, maybe the end of the year for that. But right now, GitHub Genius and Twitter Genius OL are the, are the best places to find me. Nice. Back when functional programming was making its resurgence, I found it really interesting that a lot of people were moving over there and it almost felt like it was on hype and I didn't really understand the power of functional programming until I learned Elixir. Elixir is a functional programming language. It's built on the Erlang virtual machine and it really does some interesting things and makes you build apps in a different way. But what's really fascinating about it is the speed of the applications, the ability to distribute work easily and just how it manages the functional programming and all of the nice things about it so that you don't have to worry about side effects and a lot of the other things that come out of functional programming. Plus, pattern matching in Elixir is a killer feature. If you're looking for a new language that you want to learn that is going to make a difference for you and give you the opportunity to challenge some of your thinking and find a new way of doing it, Elixir is a great way to go. And we have a podcast now on Elixir called Elixir Mix. And you can find that at elixirmix.com. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. So on these shows, we shout out about stuff we like, you know, talk about some of the stuff that we're doing or working on. I'll go first to kind of give you an idea. Mm -hmm. Um, So my first pick, and this is something I did on Saturday as I ran the St. George Marathon in Utah. Congratulations. Um, That's my first marathon. Double congrats. I'm still a bit sore. My three-year-old was crawling on my lap yesterday and (laughs) was like, you got to get off of me. You're killing me. Wow. Because my quads are just super sore because it's uh, over the course of the race, you drop about 2,500 feet in elevation. Oh, and that's not always easy running down. No, it's a different kind of hard. Yeah. So, yeah. So by mile 18, I was, my quads were hurting. By mile 20, my quads were really hurting. I was dying. So your pick is for like an ice pack. <laughs> yeah, something like that. It's funny because on race course, they actually have, what, what's it called? Icy hot. Like you can get icy hot put on you while you're running. My problem is, is that if I don't train with it, I don't know how it's going to affect me. I don't know if it's going to make things better or worse. Right, right. And so I just ran on by them and kind of waved them off, Mm -hmm. which may, I guess, or may not have been a good idea. But, (laughs) you know, I just, they had different kinds of foods and stuff too along the way. You know, you could pick up some bananas or or cliff bars or whatever, but I hadn't trained with any of that either. I had just been running on the the gel packs. Mm -hmm. So anyway... The marathon was awesome. It was a lot of fun. They take you all the way up the canyon and drop you off and basically tell you to run back to town. So wow. It was really great. I'm looking for another marathon to run in like March, April, May timeframe. Just because it hurt so bad, I want to do it again. So oh, rock on. Yeah. So I've really not, not attempted that. that distance yet. And then I've been reading a book and I think this is a book that pretty much everybody in the community ought to be reading. It's by John C. Maxwell. He, he writes about leadership. One of the books that he's written that's really well known is The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. I haven't read that book, actually. Uh, the book I'm reading is The 360 Degree Leader. And mm-hmm. it talks about leading from the middle, right? So if you're, say, a team lead, but not the CTO, or maybe you're the CTO, but not the CEO, right? So you have a leader above you, you have other leaders who are, you know, at the same level as you, and then you have people yep. under you. You kind of have this 360 degree area that you have to work in, right? Where you're leading up, you're leading across and you're leading down. And he talks about the different attributes and practices that you need in order to be successful there. And I'm really, really digging it. it it's funny because here at devchat.tv, I am at the top of the organization. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I, I own the company. I, you know, I make the calls. Well, I make the calls that I want to make, I guess, and I delegate the rest. It, it's been really interesting to me just to be like, okay, you know, this is something that I need to be cognizant of with the people that work under me and do my best to make sure that they have opportunities to lead back up to me and lead, you know, across to each other or down to each other. And anyway, it's it's been a really, really good book to read. And it talks a lot about, too, about just, you know, some of the cultural and uh, other concerns that you're going to have in an organization. So I highly, highly recommend that to anybody who works in an organization, even if you're at the bottom. And mm-hmm, it's just mm-hmm. because it really teaches you where you can have some influence and how to make the most of it and really help other folks out. It helps you recognize that as you do that, that it's going to come back. It'll come back to you. Yeah. Anyway, those are my picks. Dean, do you have some picks? There was a few people I was going to... Uh... Shout out to, I, I mentioned Michael Shillman for his work on Storybook. Mm-hmm. Kent C. Dodds, I've been loving listening to the stuff that he has and uh, using um, the React testing library. That's definitely yep. become a, a key part of our reliability strategy. So thanks. And then uh, the dark horse that came in, um, I met at RxJS Live. David K. Piano is his uh, Twitter mm-hmm. handle. He's published a library called XState for uh, state machines. So that library is very cool, but really he's, he's just been a, a repository of, of techniques for animating because that's kind of been my, my jam now is like figuring in animations and states over time. So he's good at both states and time. <laughs> so that's been cool. All of that, of course, is in like the, uh, the tech direction. Uh, if I can throw a musical thing uh, your way, I'm really addicted to a band called Gangsta Grass, whose motto is that hip-hop is folk music. They have oh, uh, cool. two MCs, a banjo player, a loop pedal, and a violinist. And they're really an amalgam of uh, hip-hop and uh, bluegrass. It sounds maybe odd, but it's authentic. And uh, real songs and real talent on both sides of the uh, of the of the genres, and I'm just I've seen them live several times, and I'm got their live al- album on uh, in in my car. <laughs> nice, yeah. It's always interesting to see where people find these juxtapositions of the things that they like, and yeah, good running music. I'm always looking for good running music. <laughs> yeah. Well, congrats on your marathon. Well, thanks. I'm going to go ahead and start uh, heading toward wrapping up, but thanks for coming, Dean. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, folks, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up. And in the meantime, go max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more. <laughs>